Yeah, Father God, um, thank you for Jamie. Thank you, Lord, for the knowledge that he has developed over time of your word. But most of all, we, we thank you for the relationship that he has developed with you. Thank you that, uh, yeah, that uh, he knows you and he loves you and his life is submitted to you. And we pray, Lord, that as, uh, as he speaks to us now, Lord, will you give us ears to hear all that you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much, Deb. Morning, everybody. Hope you're well. Now, I've got new glasses and they don't work very well. So if I'm constantly on and off with the glasses, that's why. I can either see you or I can see my notes. Please don't judge me if I take my glasses off so I can't see you anymore. Oh, and the text is really small on this church Bible. If you've got, if you've got a Bible, you might need it. Um, we're looking at a very short passage today, and it will be on the screen. But if you have a Bible on your phone, um, this is your chance to be on Facebook while I'm preaching and look like you're reading the Bible. It's happened before. Um, you might want to get hold of that now. Uh, we're continuing our series on the Bible, um, celebrating Scripture, celebrating what the Bible is. Um, and I'm going to do that odd thing of talking about the Bible, but actually trying to talk from the Bible as well, because it would be a real shame if I spent the whole time talking about the Bible and never actually opened it, wouldn't it? Um, and we're talking today a little bit, and we're thinking a little bit about the Bible's authority. Now, I don't know how you feel. Here we go with the, with the glasses. I don't know how you feel about the word. I'm just going to abandon them. You all look much nicer in soft focus, actually. Um, <laughs> I don't know how you feel about the word authority. I'm, I'm not comfortable. I don't like the word authority. I don't like the idea of someone being an authority over me. I'm a bit of a rebel. I'm a bit of a, a hard person to lead. Um, and I'm not very good at listening to those uh, who have authority over me. That's my confession. And the word authority gets my back up a little bit. It tends to speak to me of kind of arbitrary rules laid down by somebody else. It tends to speak to me of, you know, kind of strict boundaries set upon my life when I want... We like the word freedom. We don't always like the word authority, right? Um, I don't know about you, but that's sometimes what the word authority does for me. Um, now, the Bible, of course, does contain some rules. Uh, the Ten Commandments, lots of the Book of Leviticus, the Sermon on the Mount, various other places. There are instructions for life. But the vast majority, as we heard last week from Tim, the vast majority of the Bible is not actually rules. Um, it's not a book full of rules. It, it's, an, it's an odd collection of stories and poems and songs and letters. Not the sort of writing that we tend to think of when you think of the word authority. So we're going to think a little bit together about what does it mean for this odd collection of stories and history and poems and songs and letters for this to have authority in our lives what on earth does it mean for a story to have authority what does it mean for a poem to have authority what does it mean for, for a letter written by one person to another church 2,000 years ago to have authority in our lives so that's where we're going to go um, the interesting thing you may or may not know, is that the Bible never uses the word authority to speak of itself. The Bible has lots and lots to say about the authority of God. The New Testament has a tremendous amount to say about the authority of Jesus in his ministry and his teaching and his works of power and so on. But the Bible doesn't actually talk about itself very much. The Bible's not like me. It doesn't talk about itself very much. And when it does, it never uses the word authority. That's our way of talking about what we've come to confess about this book but the bible doesn't actually say that about itself 
It does say a few things about itself, and this is one of them. We're going to look at second, the second letter to Timothy, chapter 3. And just a few verses, and they're going to stay on the screen. So um, you can be forgiven for not getting your Bibles open. You don't have to virtue signal by pulling out a big Bible at this point. I've got mine open in case the Lord takes me somewhere else in it and gives me the gift of sight to be able to read it at the same time. Um, <clears throat> if that happens, you'll know about it, and the sermon will go a different direction, just so you know. We're going to read this, um, this wonderful passage from um, Paul's second letter to Timothy. He loved Timothy. Timothy's his protege. He's this junior minister. Paul is towards the end of his life here in prison, writing to the guy he trained about church leadership and about his own life, how to grow in the faith, how to lead a, a rabble church in Ephesus. And um, he just loves Timothy and he's leaving him these kind of final instructions. It's a beautifully moving letter full of advice from a senior pastor to a junior one. And I'm constantly finding myself learning from this letter. I try and read it every year because it's what I do for a living. I train ministers for a living. So I have to take my cue under the authority of Second Timothy as to how I'm supposed to train them. Anyway, here's my glasses again. Here's 2 Timothy 3, and I'm going to read from verse 14. Paul's in the middle of all these instructions and advice to Timothy. And he says this, But as for you, that's Paul to Timothy, As for you, continue in what you have learned and become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, Correcting and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Quite famous verses, wonderful, wonderful verses to dwell on, and I've spent the privilege of this week spending a lot of time dwelling on them and getting lost in them, uh, very much lost in them and confused and trying to find my way back out again. We're going to zoom right into the middle. So this is our first, our first point. We're going to zoom right into the middle and one word. I don't often preach from one word, but I'm going to do that for a little bit today. Zooming right in on this, what is one word in the original, which is this word God-breathed. All scripture is God-breathed. It doesn't say all scripture is authoritative, but it does say God-breathed. So we're going to zoom right in on this word. It's an odd word, not used anywhere else in the Bible. It's the only place you find this word in the whole Bible. You hardly ever find it anywhere in ancient literature at all. It pops up here and there, but it's unique within the pages of the Bible. God breathed to speak about the Bible. What on earth does this unique word mean? There's been a lot of fighting and wrangling over the meaning of this word, which is quite ironic given that just a chapter ago, Paul was warning Timothy about people arguing over words, and then here we get this word and we argue over what it means. What does it mean to say that the scripture is God breathed? We can't go anywhere else to find out how that word is used anywhere else because it's the only place it's used in the whole of Scripture. But however, God has breathed into things before. Anyone tell me two other places in the Bible where God breathes into things? Yes? Into Adam, Genesis 2. The creation, God breathes into Adam and gives him life and spirit. And he comes alive. Yes, the other place? Somebody else, come on. The other place God breathes, and I'll give you a clue, it also gives life again. The same thing happens. Ezekiel, somebody said Ezekiel. Who was that? Ezekiel, gold star if you know the chapter. It's the dry bones. Anyone know the chapter? Gold stars are on offer. They're metaphorical gold stars. I don't actually have gold stars. 37, okay. Ezekiel 37. God breathes in the valley of dry bones, and these skeletons take on flesh and become a living army as a symbol of what God is going to do for the people of Israel. 
So there's twice, twice in the Bible, God breathes into something. And what happens is dusty old stuff becomes life. And here, Paul says of Scripture, God, it is, it is God-breathed. So this dusty old book of old poems and old stories, God breathes his life, his spirit, into it. What an amazing thing. So in a sense, it's like any other book. But in a very important sense, it's like no other book on earth. That here, God says, I breathe, and I breathe life into these pages. God breathed. Now, we tend to approach the question, and when we're arguing about what it means to be God breathed, we tend to approach it in this kind of how did that happen kind of way. Um, did the Holy Spirit dictate into the ears of the people who were writing? Did he steer their hands? Did it fall from heaven ready, ready made into the brains of the people who were writing? How, how does inspiration work? How does God breatheness work? We focus on the how. And we get tied up in all sorts of knots. Um, which form of it are we talking about? You know, was it the Greek translation of the Hebrew? Or was it the original Hebrew? And we get into all these kinds of detailed arguments about exactly how it worked. Um, and I want to suggest that that's kind of missing the point slightly. Those are important questions, interesting questions. But there's a far more important one, which is not the how, but the who of God breathed. So not just the breathed bit, but the God bit of that word. It is God who breathed. The who matters more than the how. God has chosen to reveal God's self here by breathing his life, his spirit, into these pages. And in, 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 in breathing, in revelation, in speech, he speaks out. What does he speak? His own life is to be found here. It is him who we meet when we read these pages. So rather than getting wrapped up in how exactly did that happen which is interesting, but we're not going to go there today. Rather, who exactly will we meet? Whose life is it that is present here? The Bible is the place that God has chosen to breathe himself. I say it's the place, of course. There is a far greater place, in fact, a person in whom God has breathed his breath and where God is revealed. But we're not at Christmas yet. So for now, we talk about the Bible. God says... Here I breathe my breath. Here you will find me. And he reveals himself. So the who of God breathed matters a lot more to me, I think, than the how of God breathed. So here's the big idea that we take away from this. And if you get this and this is all you get, that's fine. The big idea is when we talk about the authority of the Bible, really that's a shorthand. What we really mean is the authority of God through the Bible. Actually, that's our focus. It's not the, the Bible itself that has authority. The Bible only has authority because God breathes there. It's not itself a center of authority. And that's really, really important for all sorts of ways. So when we say the authority of the Bible, we mean the authority of God through the Bible. When we say Holy Bible, I don't know about yours, mine says Holy Bible on the front. It's only holy because God is there. It's not holy in and of itself. Just like the temple was only holy because the spirit dwelled there, the power and glory of God dwelled there. That made it holy. And so the temple was holy because God filled it. So too in the pages of scripture. It's only holy because God's there. And if we remember that, that's going to guard us against a couple of problems when it comes to talking about the authority of the Bible. So here, very briefly, are two common mistakes that I make all the time and that the church makes all the time when we're talking about the Bible. So there's two, two mistakes, I think, that we can easily make. The first one is this. It's really easy to make the Bible into an idol. 
And I love the Bible. I've spent most of my adult life, I became an adult around age 30, so my, most of my adult life has been spent studying and teaching the Bible to people. It's what I do. I love it. I'll talk about the Bible all day with anyone. As anyone who's had, tried to have a small talk conversation with me will know, I very quickly get awkward and want to talk about the Bible instead. So I will talk about the Bible all day, every day with anybody. I love it. I love teaching it. I get to do that for a living. It's the best most of the time when I'm not in administrative meetings or doing emails. If I'm in the classroom and I'm teaching, time flies by. If I'm preaching, time flies by. I love talking about the Bible. But it's not the ultimate source of authority. The Bible is not my ultimate source of authority. Notice I said the word ultimate. The ultimate source of authority is God himself. And if I turn the Bible into an ultimate source of authority, the main thing, I've set it up against God, and I really shouldn't do that. It's the very definition of an idol. You call something else God that is not God. So I have to be careful that when I am giving all of my love and attention to the scriptures and learning them and trying to teach them better and understand them better, I'm trying to see, as it were, through them to see God. Because he's promised that's where he'll meet me. And I mustn't focus on the thing and mistake the thing for the one it's supposed to take me to. Because that would be bad. It would be a moving of the, the center of authority which must belong with God not the Bible itself, but through the Bible to God. I mustn't move that center of authority and make the Bible itself God to me. That's the route to fundamentalism, and it's the route to weaponizing the Bible, using it as a stick to beat people with, usually the people we, agree, we disagree with to begin with. And we turn the Bible into something we wield. Did anyone else grow up doing sword drills? Okay, I grew up doing sword drills. They probably have a much nicer name now, where it was Sunday school, and you had, you had to be the first one to find a certain passage in the Bible. Right? It's great fun. I was pretty good at it. It's probably how I ended up like this. It's one of the few things I was good at. Um, yes, the Bible is a sword, but we have to be careful how we think about wielding that sword. And if we turn it into a, um, an idol, we can use then that idol to beat people up with. And we mustn't do that, because what we've done is we've shifted the center of authority away from God, he is the one who wields it, as it were, not us. So that's one mistake, is to turn the Bible into an idol. So the other mistake is to make the Bible serve us. It's a very similar mistake in some ways. So we shift the authority away from God, but instead of placing it on the Bible, we shift the authority to ourselves and what feels right to us or what we think we think or what, we, what it seems to be saying to us today. And this is a more subtle one, and it's a danger within the church, where God's speech, God's breatheness becomes inside us all the time, what we feel. And we make that the center of authority. We make our own readings of what we think it's saying authoritative. And we have to remember that however good they are, they can't be the ultimate place that has the power. No matter how many years I spend as a Bible scholar, no matter how, many, how, much, how right I think I am, and I'm right on 70% of what I think, I reckon, I just don't know which 70%. No matter how right I think I am, that can, I can, must always be prepared to be wrong because that, that can't be the center of authority. God is. God breathed doesn't mean it skips over the Bible straight into my heart as some kind of constant sense of what God is saying. I have to attend to the Bible and what it is. It's this thing that God chose to speak through. So how do we guard against those two mistakes of making the Bible into an idol or making our own feelings the center of authority? How do we avoid those two things? I think um, learning to recognize that God has the authority and he chooses to speak through these pages 
And these, this thing, this, the Bible, what it, with all of its weirdness and all of its strangeness, is the thing that God has chosen. We remember that then we want to be under his authority as we study and as we try and read and learn and hear from him, knowing that he promises to speak there, that we're not just going as a kind of an academic exercise. We're going to hear God's voice. We come, we keep him in the center, and we come to the scriptures to hear, to listen carefully. Now, I'm not a good listener. I don't know about you. I've had to learn to be a good listener, especially in the early years of my marriage. I had to learn. Um, I was one of those people that I already knew what your problem was before you finished the sentence. And I, I figured out the solution just about by the end, right? And I'm straight in with that solution. I'm sure I'm the only person here that's got that problem. Um, I had to learn to be a good listener, and it takes a lot of skill. If you've ever done counseling training or anything like that, active listening, careful listening, it takes a lot of effort. It's exhausting listening to someone. Right? You're doing it right now. You're all being very patient. Some of you have switched off. I'm going to get my glasses back on. Listening to me is hard, right? You're tired now. You want me to stop. I'll be done in a couple of minutes. It's the same with the Bible. It's hard work. <laughs> you've got to study. You've got to think. You've got to read carefully and read again and read again. And what on earth is this saying? And I've got to go back and start and read from the beginning again because I don't understand what on earth I'm just talking about this one word for for 20 minutes. We're going to do that in a second. Listening is hard work. But if you listen well and apply yourself, you actually hear the person better, won't you? It's the same thing with the Bible. If you apply yourself and listen to hear God's voice of life, that breath of life is there to be heard. But it won't just happen by automatic download. You won't just get it in a 30-second flip. Sometimes you will because God's gracious. But what you really should do is try and listen carefully. Sit down and spend some time and listen. That's what studying the Bible really is. It's just good listening. And that's why it's hard work. <laughs> and that's why it takes a lot of time to get, to get good at. So here we are. God has chosen to breathe through this particular thing. These letters and these stories and this history and these poems and all these things gathered together in this, this Bible that we carry or this app that we have in our pocket. And God says, I'm going to breathe there. And we're like... It's like breathing into bones. What, this is just weird. Surely there's a better way. Surely you could have done that more powerfully. And yet God says, here, I will breathe. And what do we do? We learn to listen. We listen together. We listen with each other. We hear what other people are hearing. Because we might not have heard right. And so we listen with people, especially those who are different to us. Those who come from a different background. Those whose experiences are different. We're going to learn with them as we listen to God speak. And we learn with those who went before us. Don't neglect the voices of the long departed. So we read back through the centuries as our brothers and sisters, the great communion of saints, have tried to hear God as well. And we say, what did they hear when they read this passage? And that's all in books. And there's videos and there's audio books and all sorts of other things. But we try and listen with one another. So we get together and we read together. We don't just sit on our own because that wouldn't make for very good listening. And actually that's where the Holy Spirit promises to be, to lead us into all truth. And so we read together, as we are doing now. So let me follow my own advice with my last little point here and zoom out a little bit. So we've spent a lot of time focusing on just that one word, God breathed. But it comes in a context. It comes in a big, big picture of a letter from Paul to Timothy. And it comes in this context of these few verses. And it's always a good idea, if you're focusing on one word, to zoom out a little bit and say, well, what's going on? And what's happening is, as I said at the beginning, Paul is advising Timothy on how to live. How to be a good minister, how to be a good Christian. And that's the point. In, in the middle of all this, we get this word about the scriptures being God-breathed. 
And it's actually the whole point of the passage. The authority of the Bible is actually really about what it's for. What is the Bible for? It's not really about what it is. It's about its goal. What is it for? And we're told what it's for. We're told it's useful. Useful to whom, I wonder? Useful to us, certainly. But far more importantly, it's useful to God. It's the thing he uses. Useful for what? In his hands, it becomes the thing that is used to make us wise to salvation. Wow. God chooses to use this thing, a book of all things. One of those funny, dusty things that we learn to hate. A book to make us wise for salvation through faith in Jesus. We'll meet Jesus here if we go looking for him. In God's hands, as he breathes through it, it teaches us and rebukes us. That's the positive and the negative side of learning to think about God. To be taught and to be rebuked where we're wrong. And the scriptures in God's hands by his breath do that. And they're also, we're told, it's useful for correcting and training in righteousness, which is about our life, the positive and the negative to be trained and to be corrected. So we can have our, our minds transformed and our lives transformed as God uses the Bible and speaks through it into our lives and to transform us. Why? So that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Ultimately, it's about our lives, living lives of goodness and giving glory to God. It's not just about knowing more stuff. Knowing stuff is good. But knowing stuff without living good lives is not wisdom. And it's, we're told it's to make us wise. So God remains the one with the authority. And he wants to use that authority through the Bible to save us. To show us Jesus. Through faith in him to be transformed. And to live lives filled with good works. And filled with his breath, which is life. And that's the whole point. The Bible must never be a stick to beat people with. And confessing its authority does not mean we get to use it against others. But nor is it a self-help guide or a comfort blanket. It can bring us comfort. It can bring correction to a world that needs correction. But it does so when God breathes life through it. Not when we whack people with it. Or when we use it just to comfort ourselves and make ourselves feel better. And ultimately, of course, if we go there looking for Jesus, we will find not only wisdom but also salvation. Final little thought. I know that's the second time I've said final thought. Final thought. Isn't this a strange way for God to reveal himself? Surely there's a better way. I mean, a 200-foot golden chiseled tablet erected somewhere where everyone can see it with all the instructions for every possible thing that could happen in my life. That would be good. I'd know what to do. I mean, you could probably do it with an app now. There's an app for that, It'll, you know, geolocated, it knows where I am, what's going on, tells me exactly what God wants for my life. That would be a lot easier. i just check the app, I'd get, get an Apple Watch, we'd all have an Apple Watch. So you walk into a certain location and it bleeps and it says, this is what God wants you to do here. Yeah, that would be great. Can I get one of those? Why didn't God choose some, why did he choose an, an old book of stories and histories and long lists of who begat who? And somehow that's where he speaks. What a strange thing to do. Or better still, a brain download like in the Matrix. Just plug the thing into the back of my head and I'll just, that would be sanctification instantly. That would be brilliant. Why didn't the Lord do that instead of this hard work that I have to do every day? And yet, 
God seems to, in his great mercy, seems to always choose the small and very human, dusty things into which to breathe his life. And if you think it's weird that he chose to breathe his life here, just you wait till Christmas. I've got another story to tell you about where God breathes his life. Let's pray. Loving God, we thank you that in these pages, in these stories, in these poems, in these letters, strangely, you have breathed. And we look at it and we ask ourselves, can these bones really live? Can these pages really be full of the life and the presence of, the, of God? And you just say, watch this. And you breathe. And there we see you. There we see Jesus. There we find faith and salvation and life and wisdom. And it's hard work, Lord, but it's a work that you come to you come to us and you give us your spirit that we might do it together. Thank you. Would you help us by your spirit to be people who go to this great fountain to drink, go to this great banquet to eat, people who come as dried up bones and there find your breath. Would you continue to breathe into our lives, into the life of this church through your scriptures? that we might be equipped for every good work and we might be wise to salvation. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his glory alone. Amen.